Robert Norman Ross and I share a birthday. He was born 33 years to the day before I was, on October 29, 1942, in Daytona Beach, Florida. As a kid, he was known to take in and care for sick or orphaned animals, which in Florida included an armadillo, a few snakes, and even an alligator. His family moved to Orlando when he was just a kid, where his dad, a carpenter, could find more work. Bob dropped out of school in the ninth grade and began working with his father full-time. At some point over the next couple of years, when his mind was undoubtedly wandering, as teenage boys' minds tend to do, he mistakenly cut off his left index finger. While he no doubt had art in his soul, perhaps carpentry wasn't for him. Soon after he turned 18, Bob joined the Air Force and would serve for the next 20 years. He worked as a medical records technician and eventually earned the rank of Master Sergeant. He was stationed at Eielson Air Force Base in Alaska, and it was there that he discovered a love of painting when he took an introductory class at the USO Club. To earn some extra money, Bob worked as a bartender at a local pub. He would paint landscapes onto souvenir gold pans to sell to tourists who came in for a drink. This was a good side business for Bob, and he pondered life as an artist. Bob was a big fan of the PBS show The Magic of Oil Painting, in which the host, Bill Alexander, demonstrated a technique called a la prima, or wet-on-wet -wet painting, favored by the likes of Monet. With this technique, you apply oil paints one on top of another, and can complete a whole painting in a short period of time. Bob was hooked, and after 20 years in the Air Force, he retired to try and make a living as a painter. He returned home to Florida, where he took a class with his mentor, Bill Alexander. Bill was so impressed with Bob that he turned over his classes to him. When Annette Kowalski turned up to one of these classes, she was disappointed to find Bob there. She had expected to be taught by Bill himself. But as she sat there and watched him paint, she found his voice and mannerisms so soft and soothing, they were almost hypnotic. She was mesmerized and wanted to share Bob with the world. She got her husband to buy in on the idea, and they got Bob to start doing painting seminars in shopping malls around the country. They were not a hit. After all, who takes a painting class at the mall? But they persevered. Their belts started to tighten as they made their way around the country, and they started doing what they could to cut costs. Bob decided to let his weekly, military-style haircuts go and grew his hair out. He got a perm to save money, and while this hairstyle didn't make him famous, it sure became a part of his brand. It's unclear exactly how it happened, but Bob was discovered at a shopping mall somewhere in America and he would soon get his own PBS show. On January 11, 1983, Bob Ross's The Joy of Painting premiered on the network. It was a hit. Bob showed us how you could paint beautiful mountain scenes or breathtaking beachscapes in just the 30 minutes the show lasted. He gave us puffy clouds and happy little trees that could always use an extra friend or two. He never made mistakes, just happy little accidents. The people that work closely with him have said to have no doubt, though, that each painting was planned out from start to finish. Bob had, after all, been in the military for 20 years, an organization which would frown on happy little accidents. The joy of painting would run for the next 11 years, with over 400 episodes being created. It is estimated that Bob painted 30,000 paintings in his lifetime. He and his partners Annette and her husband also ran Bob Ross Incorporated, selling art supplies and how-to books. While times changed, as did his finances, and he grew to hate that permed hairdo, he kept it because it was on every book and tube of paint they sold. My favorite thing about the joy of painting, though, is that PBS estimates that only about 10% of viewers were actually painting along with Bob. Most, like me, simply enjoyed watching it because it just made you feel good. I dare you to try watching it and not smiling. Tragically, 
Bob developed lymphoma, probably sometime in his late 40s. In later episodes of the show, his infamous permed hairdo is actually a wig. He would deteriorate and cancel the show when he just got too sick, with the last episode airing on May 17, 1994. Bob passed away on the 4th of July the following year and is buried at Woodlawn Memorial Cemetery in Gotha, Florida. When Bob was a master sergeant in the Air Force, he had to be tough and sometimes even mean to people, shouting at them to get in line or clean the latrine. When he retired, he was determined to never raise his voice again. In so doing, he somehow became the yin and the yang, a master of war and a master of peace. Thank you, Bob, for your service to both causes. Wherever you are, I hope you're surrounded by happy little trees. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every time. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is wonderful to be back with you today. Since last we met, I've made my way up the west coast of Florida, from the Keys, through the Everglades, and on up to St. Petersburg, stopping at beautiful beaches as often as I could. From there, I continued up the coast to beautiful Cedar Key, before heading inland to experience the breathtaking natural springs of North Florida. Then it was off across the Panhandle, where I witnessed firsthand the devastation brought on last year by Hurricane Michael. And finally, I cruised into Pensacola, at the very end of Florida, to hang out with my friends Bruce and Tony before exiting the Sunshine State. It's been a great run and an amazing winter, and I've been working hard to bring you these stories I've come to tell you today. Somewhere along the way, I drove up a dirt road and through the woods and stopped at the infamous Bradfordville Blues Club. This club is the only stop in Florida on the National Blues Trail, and it is an awesome place to catch a show. It was there that I recorded the music for this show, performed by the amazing Florida-based jump blues band Doug Deming and the Jewel Tones. They put on an amazing and energetic show from start to finish, and I really loved it. And I know you will, too. To find out more about the band, please visit their website, dougdeming.com. D-O-U-G-D-E-M-I-N-G.com. You can also find their music on iTunes and Spotify. To find out more about me, my slow journey around the country, to see photos, or just to get in touch, please visit my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. To get the full experience, be sure you find me on Facebook, on Twitter at Miles2GoTweet, and on Instagram at Miles2GoBeforeIsleep, all using the number two for me and you. All right, y'all, let's get right to it this week. Grab yourself a margarita or a tequila sunrise. Find a comfy place to sit, lean back, Relax, and let me take you deep into the Florida Everglades, then on to the beaches, music clubs, and back roads of Florida. Put away the charts. We've found the main pile. That was the message transmitted from the salvage boat Dauntless back to the treasure salver's headquarters in Key West on July 20th, 1985. But could it be? Did that mean what they thought it did? It did. For the first time in 363 years, someone had laid eyes on Nuestra Señora de Atocha. Our story begins in Havana in 1621, where the massive ship had been built 
and was ready to set sail. The three-masted galleon was 111 feet long and 32 feet across. It was heavily armed with cannons made of Cuban copper and was to serve as the rear guard, or almirante, of the Tierra Firma fleet, sailing to the motherland loaded with New World treasures and returning with much-needed supplies. They sailed in these heavily armed fleets to avoid pirates who were always on the lookout for an easy mark. The ship was christened Nuestra Señora de Atocha, after a holy shrine in Madrid, in the hopes that God would protect her. It appears that God had other plans. The Atocha was sound and crossed the Atlantic in 1621 without incident. On March 23, 1622, it set sail from the port of Cadiz in Spain. Following much the same route as Columbus had in 1492, the Atocha made the crossing in just over two months, arriving in Portobello in what is now Panama on May 24th. Quite a haul was waiting for her there, so much so, in fact, that it took two months to record it all and load it onto the ship, putting her and her crew way behind schedule. You see, pirates were one thing, but the real fear was the same then as it is now in the Caribbean. Hurricanes. They knew enough about hurricane season, even then, to know they wanted to be on their way back to Spain by the end of July. The Atocha faced more delays in its other ports, finally making it back to Havana in late August. Everyone knew it was a bad idea to attempt the crossing that late in the year, but they also knew that Spain was in the midst of the Thirty Years' War and desperately needed this treasure to help fund the war effort. They had to get back to Spain, and waiting wasn't an option. Finally, on September 4, 1622, under sunny skies, the 28-boat Tierra Firma fleet departed Havana for Spain, with Nuestra Señora de Atocha bringing up the rear. Needing to catch the Gulf Stream, they headed through the Dry Tortugas on their way towards the Florida coast. The first night they were underway, the sky darkened and the winds picked up, coming out of the northeast. By daybreak, the waves were enormous, rocking the huge wooden ships. Passengers were sent below deck, where their seasickness could only get worse. No doubt there was a lot of praying going on on those boats that day. Perhaps their prayers were answered, because the next day the wind shifted south and pushed the first 20 boats past the barrier reef and the dry tortugas and into the relatively safe Gulf of Mexico. The Atocha, bringing up the rear, would not be so lucky. With broken masts and tattered sails, it bobbed hopelessly on the Atlantic side of the reef. It was September 6, 1622, just two days after they had left Havana. The winds were unbelievable and the waves pounded the boat relentlessly. And then the final wave came. It lifted the Atocha high up into the air and then brought it smashing down onto the reef. Packed to the rafters with heavy gold and silver and fully loaded with cannons to protect it, it very quickly sank to the bottom of the sea. That close to the reef, the sea was shallow though, only about 55 feet deep. In fact, when the ship was fully down, the mizzenmast was still sticking out of the water. The only five survivors of the wreck lived by clinging to the mast and were saved the next day by a merchant ship. The other 265 people on board died what I can only imagine was a terrifying death in the wind and the waves and the storm. The people were a huge loss, but the treasure the treasure must be saved. Several boats returned to Havana to bring news of the accident, and a recovery team was organized. The intact mizzenmast would have made the ship easy to find, but another hurricane raged through the Caribbean in early October, snapping the mast as it passed over the wreck. While the Santa Margarita, another ship wrecked by the storm, was found and partially salvaged. Despite several years of searching, Nuestra Señora de Atocha was never found. Slowly, 
over the next few hundred years, it faded from memory and into obscurity. Mel Fisher was born in Gary, Indiana, just 16 days shy of 300 years later. While most stories I've read note that he was a chicken farmer before he took up diving, he was also a Purdue-educated hydraulic engineer. He went on to become a dive shop owner in Redondo Beach, California, where he became fascinated with the idea of treasure hunting. When asked why, he responded, for the fun, the romance, the adventure. At some point in the late 1960s, his fascination turned to obsession as he set his sights on finding the Atocha. He moved his family to Key West and began seeking investors in his quest. Four years after he began looking, he came across three silver bars, believed to be from the Spanish wreck. Two years after that, they found five cannons. That celebration was short-lived, though, as just a few days after the discovery, Mel's son Dirk, his wife Angel, and one of their best divers were killed when their boat sank. Despite this loss, the search continued. At that point, they had invested six years into the hunt, and they thought they must be close. Every day began with Mel optimistically telling his crew, Today is the day. Ten years of today's became yesterday's, though, before the day finally came. As we heard in the beginning of this story, the day was July 20th, 1985. The divers who made the discovery described it as like looking at a reef made out of silver bars. What they were able to salvage from this mother load has been estimated to be worth roughly $450 million, making it one of the biggest treasures ever recovered. This celebration was also short-lived, though, as the state of Florida immediately claimed ownership of the wreck. Mel Fisher wasn't going to roll over, though. He had spent 16 years looking for the Atocha and lost friends and family along the way. His case would eventually end up in the U.S. Supreme Court, where he was granted the rights to the treasure and to continue his salvage operation, an operation which continues today. While Mel Fisher passed away at his home in Key West in 1998 at the age of 76, his family continues to search. You see, while they have recovered an incredible amount, the stern castle of the ship which would have contained the most valuable cargo, is still out there somewhere. Experts' best guesses put the value of the cargo in the Stern Castle at another half billion dollars. Maybe it will be discovered in one chunk, or maybe in bits and pieces. In 2011, they found one emerald ring with an estimated value of $500,000. And so they'll keep looking wouldn't you? You can view parts of the treasure today at the Mel Fisher Maritime Museum in Key West, a town where the great treasure hunter is still held in high regard. I thought about all of this as I rode the ferry back from the Dry Tortugas to Key West, wondering if at that very moment we were passing over treasure which hadn't seen the light of day since 150 years before the United States was born. I also thought about Mel Fisher's undying optimism. Maybe for you or I, today is the day. Headline, presidential election too close to call. Florida's electoral votes will be the deciding factor. As Inauguration Day nears, Supreme Court weighs in. Sound familiar? It does to me too. I remember it well. But 
This story is not about the 2000 presidential election between Al Gore and George W. Bush. It is, in fact, about the election of 1876 between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. The election of 1876 had the highest voter turnout in American history, with 82% of registered voters casting a ballot that year. While many of you have likely never heard of Samuel Tilden, he did, in fact, win the popular vote that year by over a quarter of a million votes. And yet the presidency eluded him. At the end of the day, it all came down to one Supreme Court judge and tiny Florida's four electoral votes in what was one of the strangest and most hotly debated elections in American history. At the end of the Civil War, General Ulysses S. Grant emerged as one of the most trusted and respected figures in the Union. Although he probably would have preferred to stay in the military where he was comfortable, many people saw him as the one man who could unify the country after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. At 46 years old, Grant became the youngest president in the history of the country to that point. His first term claimed many successes, but his second was plagued by scandal and a failing economy. Despite these hardships, many people expected him to run for a third term. When he chose not to run, the Republicans found themselves in a bind. Their leading alternative was a man named James Blaine, who had won the first six ballots at their convention, but they were afraid he could not beat the Democrat Samuel Tilden. On the seventh ballot, the Republicans overwhelmingly nominated instead Rutherford B. Hayes, a Civil War hero and the then Republican governor of Ohio. In reality, Hayes didn't have many policy differences with New York Governor Samuel Tilden, so the election quickly turned to a mudslinging campaign. Things got pretty ugly as the personal attacks amped up from both sides. When election day finally rolled around, foul play was rampant from both parties. When the dust settled, Tilden clearly emerged victorious in the popular vote, but things got murky when it came to the Electoral College. It seemed that three states, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida, had each turned in conflicting results. Tilden had captured 184 of the 185 electoral votes needed to win, with the 19 electoral votes of these three states hanging in the balance. Hayes would need all 19 to emerge victorious. Congress was faced with a huge conundrum, with no clear or constitutional path forward. On January 29, 1877, they decided to appoint a 15-member electoral commission to determine what to do. Five members of the commission would come from each house, and the remaining five would come from the Supreme Court. The congressional members chosen were evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. Two of the Supreme Court justices chosen were Democrats, two were Republicans, and those four were to choose the final member of the commission. The obvious choice was Justice David Davis, a true independent who would be the tie-breaking vote. In one of a dozen strange twists in this story, Davis was elected as a senator from his home state of Illinois in that election and left the Supreme Court to fill this Senate seat instead. With only Republicans left to pick from on the court, Justice Joseph Bradley was chosen as the deciding vote. The Constitution clearly stated that the new president must be inaugurated on March 4th, but with that date falling on a Sunday in 1877, it would take place on the 5th instead. If a decision wasn't reached by that date, the country would face a serious constitutional crisis, something it may not have been able to bear just 12 years after the Civil War ended. The commission was split along party lines, leaving Bradley to decide the fate of the country. Looking at it from a simplistic standpoint, it would seem that since the 15th Amendment had given black men the right to vote, and since both Louisiana and South Carolina had a majority black population, 
it is likely that both of those states had leaned towards Hayes, the Republican candidate from the party of Lincoln, which left Florida with a population at the time of just 187,000 people, of which less than half were men of voting age. But Florida at the time did have a white majority. While as I mentioned, it is overly simplistic to call an election on purely racial lines, that was very likely the case in the South in 1876. While Judge Bradley also probably knew this, he voted with the Republicans, and the commission gave the election to Hayes by an 8-7 vote. Democrats were no doubt furious and threatened to filibuster the decision, extending the confirmation past the March 5th deadline. A compromise was needed, and a compromise was reached. Congressional leadership met behind closed doors at a fascinating institution in my hometown of Washington, D.C., the world-renowned Wormley Hotel. The Wormley Hotel was a five-story luxury hotel favored by politicians, military leaders, and diplomats from around the world. It is interesting because the proprietor, James Wormley, was a free black man, born free, in fact, to free parents right there in Washington, D.C. He was an excellent host and a wonderful chef, and his hotel was located at 1500 H Street, just about a block from the White House. Somewhere in the depths of the Wormley, the Compromise of 1877, sometimes called the Wormley Compromise, was reached. The Democrats agreed to accept Hayes as the president. In return, they wanted federal troops out of the South and Southern politics, effectively ending the period of Reconstruction. They also wanted a Southern route for a cross-country railroad, a Southern Postmaster General in the Cabinet, and federal funds for the rebuilding of the South. A compromise in place, Hayes was confirmed in a Senate vote at 4.10 a.m. on March 2, 1877. Fearing some further setback, President Grant had Hayes sworn in the following day at the White House in a private ceremony, although the public inauguration would go on as planned on March the 5th. Tilden, no doubt upset by this result, stated, quote, I can retire to private life with the consciousness that I shall receive from prosperity the credit of having been elected to the highest position without any of the cares and responsibilities of the office, end quote. For his part, Hayes had already agreed that he would not seek re-election in 1880. His election was still seen as contentious, especially in the South, where he was often called Ruther Fraud B. Hayes. Sadly, either way the election had gone would have ended Reconstruction in the South, which had far-reaching implications for black citizens there. The Southern states would continue to undermine the 15th Amendment, which had given black men the right to vote. They would move from intimidation to actual policy, which would disenfranchise the vast majority of black Southerners for the next 90 years. One of the ways they did this was through the levying of poll taxes, the first of which was instituted in Florida in 1889. White-only primary elections, literacy tests, and long residency requirements were also used to great effect, and intimidation through violence continued. From 1890 to 1930, Florida trailed only Mississippi in the number of lynchings per capita. In 1870, while Union troops were still monitoring elections in Florida, Josiah Wells, a former slave from Alachua County, had become Florida's first black congressman. He would be the only black member of Congress from Florida for the next 116 years. While yes, slavery was absolutely one of the root causes of the Civil War, the freeing of the slaves was not and equality was certainly never an intended result. With the election of 1876 and the Compromise of 1877, the party of Lincoln and a majority of the country chose to turn a blind eye and therefore turn their back on millions of black Americans across the South. The end of Reconstruction 
would usher in another century of violence and inequality for people born within our borders to families which had lived here for generations, all because of the amount of melanin in their skin. To say the Civil War ended slavery is a fact. To say that that was the end of the story is ignorant. To say that we could have done better is unquestionable. To say we should have done better in a country whose very foundation stated that all men are created equal, in a country of the people, by the people, and for the people, well, to say that is just me being honest. Ten years later, then former president Rutherford B. Hayes is quoted as saying, free government cannot long endure. If property is largely in a few hands and large masses of people are unable to earn homes, education, and a support in old age, end quote. I couldn't agree with you more, sir. And yet it seems the moral of this whole story is that the more things change, the more they stay the same. There are no other Everglades in the world. They are, they have always been, one of the unique regions of the earth, remote, never wholly known. Nothing anywhere else is like them. Their vast, glittering openness, wider than the enormous visible round of the horizon. The racing free saltness and sweetness of their massive winds under the dazzling blue heights of space. They are unique also in the simplicity, the diversity, the related harmony of the forms of life they enclose. The miracle of the light pours over the green and brown expanse of sawgrass and of water, shining and slow-moving below. The grass and water that is the meaning and the central fact of the Everglades of Florida. It is a river of grass. Thus begins Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's classic book, Everglades, A River of Grass. But this book was neither the beginning nor the end of Douglas's ties to Florida's Everglades. Marjorie Stoneman was born in Minneapolis in 1890 and first visited Florida when she was four years old and her parents took her on a cruise from Tampa to Havana. Her parents split when she was six, and her mother moved her to Massachusetts. Marjorie's mom struggled with her mental health and was committed to a sanitarium several times. Young Marjorie found solace in words, first in reading books, and, as she got older, in writing. She had her first story published in a children's magazine when she was just 16. She went to Wellesley, where she graduated with a 4.0. She enjoyed many activities at college, including the Women's Suffrage Club. Her mother passed away when she was a senior at Wellesley, and perhaps to fill some of that void, she met and married Kenneth Douglas in 1914, a man 30 years her senior. He was not a good man, and thankfully she left him the following year. Later that same year, she moved to Miami, then a town of only about 5,000 people to reunite with her father, whom she had not seen since she was a child. He gave Marjorie a job at his newspaper, which would later become the Miami Herald. She worked as a society columnist, a topic she found boring, and for which she sometimes just made stories up. During World War I, she left Miami for Paris, where she worked for the Red Cross aiding refugees. When the war was over, she returned to Miami, and the newspaper, and was made assistant editor. Her editorial page, The Galley, was written at her discretion, and she chose topics like civil rights, women's suffrage, and sanitation to write about. In 1923, she left the Herald and began her career as a freelance journalist, 
writing both fiction and nonfiction. In 1928, she joined Miami developer Ernest Coe's Everglades Tropical National Park Association. This group was dedicated to preserving the Everglades in a time when people wanted to drain them and make room for citrus plantations and housing developments. Marjorie started thinking more about the environment of South Florida and, in 1930, wrote an article called Plumes for the Saturday Evening Post. This story was about the murder of Florida game warden Guy Bradley, whom we heard about in the last episode of this podcast. She followed this up with Wings in 1931, a story about the slaughter of wading birds in the Everglades. A few years later, she was asked to contribute to a series titled Rivers of America with a story about the Miami River. She complained that the Miami is, quote, only about an inch long, but in doing some research, she found herself drawn more and more to the story of the Everglades. She came to understand that the Kissimmee River emptied into Lake Okeechobee, which in turn emptied into the Everglades, connecting the major waterways of South Florida in one huge tropical wetland. She also characterized the Everglades as a massive, slow-moving river instead of a swamp, albeit one 60 miles wide and 100 miles long, hence the title of her book, River of Grass. This book was published in 1947, and the first printing sold out in just one month. It has sold a half million copies to date. The book makes the argument for why the Everglades are worth saving, even if they are, quote, too buggy, too wet, too generally inhospitable for camping or hiking or the other outdoor activities which naturalists and other places can routinely enjoy, end quote. That same year, President Truman signed Everglades National Park into law. This also marked an important change in our way of thinking about our national parks. Everglades National Park didn't preserve some prominent feature like Half Dome or Mount Rainier, but rather an important ecosystem with a diversity of plants and animals worthy of protection. Fast forward 22 years. In 1969, a massive jet port was proposed to be built just north of the Everglades. This brought on the wrath of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, a force to be reckoned with in South Florida. Then 79 years old, she founded the Friends of the Everglades and toured the state, denouncing the Army Corps of Engineers' plan to divert water from the Everglades. She also went after Big Sugar, which was, and sadly continues to, pollute Lake Okeechobee. The result of her work was that instead of a jet port, we got Big Cypress National Preserve. In 1986, the National Parks Conservation Association honored her by creating the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Award, which honors those people who go to great lengths to advocate and fight for the protection of the national park system. In 1991, Douglas met with Queen Elizabeth II and gave her a signed copy of River of Grass. In 1993, Douglas was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, not just for her work in the Everglades, but also on women's suffrage, civil rights, and the fight against poverty. She was 103. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, grandmother of the Glades, journalist, author, and fearless crusader for what is good and just in this world, died at 108 on May 14, 1998. Her ashes were scattered over the wilderness section of the Everglades, which will forever bear her name, the largest wilderness area east of the Mississippi. A UNESCO World Heritage Site and part of the International Biosphere Reserve, the Everglades protect the endangered Florida panther, American crocodile, West Indian manatee, and so many other species which Stoneman helped to protect. If, in listening to this story, the name Marjorie Stoneman Douglas sounds familiar, but you have not yet been able to make the connection. The connection is probably this. In 1990, to recognize her lifetime of hard work, the high school in Parkland, Florida was renamed in her honor. On February 14, 2018, a gunman entered the halls of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and started shooting. 
17 people died that day, and 17 others were wounded in one of the worst school shootings in American history. The student survivors that day have been among the most vocal in calling for an end to the violence and reform which we genuinely need. Often in their speeches, they have channeled the spirit of their school's namesake, a little lady who wouldn't take no for an answer and always fought for what she believed to be right. In telling this story, I hope that instead of the name of the person who committed those horrible acts, we will instead remember the name Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and continue to fight for what is right now and for what is right for the future. The violence in Parkland can't be undone, but we can learn from it as we look towards tomorrow. After all, there are no other Everglades in the world. There are things known and things unknown. In between are the doors. Strange as it seems, James Douglas Morrison was born smack dab in the middle of World War II, two years and a day after the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 8, 1943, in Melbourne, Florida. His father was a naval officer who was actually at Pearl Harbor in 1941 and would rise to the rank of admiral during the war in Vietnam. Being a Navy family, they moved around a lot when Jim was growing up. Florida to California, to Virginia, to Texas, to New Mexico, back to California. Finally, they settled in for Jim to finish high school at George Washington High in Alexandria, Virginia just outside my hometown of Washington, D.C. Jim was a voracious reader growing up, no doubt finding his friends and favorite books or authors, knowing he would be leaving wherever he was soon enough. His high school English teacher remembers him writing reports on really obscure books, which she was convinced he was making up. Then she realized he was spending a lot of his time across the river, sitting alone with his treasured books deep inside the Library of Congress. When Jim graduated from high school, he returned to the state of his birth to live with his paternal grandmother and attend junior college in St. Petersburg. His love of literature lived on, and he spent evenings reciting poetry at a local coffee shop. He transferred to Florida State and then on to the University of California at Los Angeles, where he studied film. It was at UCLA that he met Ray Manzarek, but it wasn't until after they graduated that they decided to put a band together. They got Robbie Krieger and John Densmore to join them, and the Doors were born. In true Jim Morrison fashion, they got their name from Aldous Huxley's book about mescaline, The Doors of Perception. This title, in turn, came from 19th century English poet William Blake, who wrote, quote, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as it is infinite. From February to May of 1966, the Doors had a residency at the LA club London Fog on the now infamous Sunset Strip. It wasn't a great club, but they gained experience and learned how to put on a good show. In May of 1966, they moved a few doors down the strip to the Whiskey Agogo, where they opened for Van Morrison at the end of his residency at the club. On Van Morrison's last night at the Whiskey, the two bands performed several songs together, including a long rendition of the hit Gloria. When I look back at music history, that is a show I really would have loved to have been at. The Doors took Van Morrison's spot, headlining the Whiskey for the next three months. While they were there, they caught the attention of Jack Holzman, founder of Electra Records, who signed them to a three-record deal. The next day, 
high on acid and barely functioning, Morrison launched into an obscenity-laced version of their song, The End, and they were promptly fired by the owner of the whiskey. Their debut, self-titled album, was recorded in just five days, and their biggest hit off that album, Light My Fire, reached number one on the Billboard charts. The doors were on their way. As the band's fame grew, Jim Morrison became a cultural icon. Dark, mysterious, rebellious, and poetic. He was the prophet 60s counterculture was searching for. Sadly, looking back now, Jim Morrison was clearly in a state of severe and prolonged depression. Whether he turned to drugs and alcohol for answers or escape, we will never know, but it seems unlikely he found much peace there. While his bandmates would turn from LSD to meditation in the late 60s, Morrison sunk deeper into the depths of his own mind. In 1969, Morrison was back in Florida for a show at the Dinner Key Auditorium in Coconut Grove. Clearly drunk and barely functioning, he threatened to expose himself to the audience and then got people to rush the stage, ending the show before it ever really got started. Fifty years later, it's still unclear as to whether he actually exposed himself or not, but the city of Miami brought him up on charges of obscenity and indecent exposure. He was sentenced to six months in jail, but appealed immediately. News of the incident caused the cancellation of numerous shows across the country. The Doors returned to the studio, and in contrast to their debut album, which took five days to record, the Soft Parade their fourth album took 11 months to record. In 1970, The Doors recorded Morrison Hotel, an album which showed a shift from the psychedelic sounds of their early albums to a more bluesy kind of rock and roll, exemplified by the album's first track, Roadhouse Blues. Although banned in most major markets, The Doors performed where they could to promote the album. On December 11, 1970, just three days after Morrison's 27th birthday, he played his final show with The Doors at the warehouse in New Orleans. He had some kind of breakdown on stage and refused to perform. At that point, the other band members decided their live performances couldn't go on. They were doing more to hurt the band than help it. Despite this, The Doors returned to the studio in 1971 and the session resulted in the album L.A. Woman, which went on to become their second best-selling album. Interestingly, the album features Jerry Sheff on bass guitar, taking a break from performing in Elvis Presley's TCB band. In addition to the title track, this album featured the hits Riders on the Storm and Love Her Madly. After L.A. Woman was released, Jim Morrison left The Doors, and he and his girlfriend moved to Paris, Four months later, Jim Morrison was dead, found in the bathtub of their flat by his girlfriend. The cause of death was listed as heart failure, and he was buried in the Pierre Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, with only his girlfriend and the band's manager in attendance. Since no autopsy was performed, contributing causes to his death remain speculation. I remember visiting his grave, almost 20 years ago, on my first trip overseas a trip which helped launch a lifetime of travel, which has led me to this leg of the journey that has been my life. The Doors had eight consecutive gold albums during their unimaginably brief four-year run. They've sold over 100 million albums worldwide, were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1993, and came in at number 41 in Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Artists of All Time. Musically speaking, the band was classically trained and incredibly talented, fusing their diverse backgrounds into a new sound which helped define an era. But their success was also in large part due to the unique and mesmerizing personality of their lead singer, a Navy brat from Florida who spent his high school years reading old books in the Library of Congress. What was really going on behind those expressive eyes, we'll never know but I promise you, it wasn't good. Although he died before I was born and I didn't know him, Jim Morrison was a tortured soul. Fame and fortune couldn't make him happy, and drugs and alcohol 
could only numb the pain. Thankfully, mental health is something we know more about these days. But sadly, it's too late to save so many of the brilliant minds we've lost to the darkness. As Mental Health Awareness Month nears in the United States, Jim Morrison provides an excellent example of someone literally screaming for help. As we isolate ourselves more and more in this world, it seems harder and harder to find community and love and peace. Remember that sometimes the best thing you can do for someone is just to be there. Watch out for each other and take care of each other out there. Jim Morrison once said, a friend is someone who lets you have total freedom to be yourself. And I will close this story with one last quote from the late, great lead singer of The Doors. There are no laws. There are no rules. Just grab your friend and love him. And that is it for the podcast this week. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. If you enjoyed it as much as I did, please take 30 seconds to rate and review the show. To find out more about where I've been and what I've been up to, please be sure you check out my blog at www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. To get the whole story, be sure you find me on Facebook, on Twitter at miles to go tweet and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep, all using the number two for me and you. I know you love the music this week. If it didn't get your heart racing and your feet moving, I don't know what would. Many thanks to our musical guest this week, Doug Deming and the Jewel Tones, recorded live at the Bradfordville Blues Club outside of Tallahassee. To find out more about this great Florida band, visit their website, dougdeming.com, D-O-U-G-D-E-M-I-N-G.com. They've got a new album out, and you can find that and all of their music on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks, as always, go to Kevin McLeod over at IncompTechMusic.com for background music, and to the great folks at FreeSFX.com. Our theme music comes from the legendary Memphis Slim. From here, I'm off to the bayous and backwaters of Louisiana to get my fill of crawfish and Cajun music. I'll be back with you in a couple of weeks with my take on the Pelican State. Until then, get out and enjoy some spring weather and some great live music, or go explore a small town or state park in your area and let me know what you find out there. Thanks again for listening. I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.